Well, I invite you to turn this evening to the book of Joshua. We will be taking kind of a tour. If you've ever gone on a trip where you didn't have a specific destination, but where you've kind of toured the area and a tour guide has pointed out various destinations and various highlights, that's a bit of what we're going to do this evening with the book of Joshua. It is a truism that it is a challenge for a minister who seeks to preach expositionally through books of the Bible that when you get to passages like we come to in Joshua 15 through 19, where the bulk of the chapters are made up of the recitation of the names of people and the names of towns, none of which you know or pronounce, and that's good because then if I don't know how to pronounce it, you won't criticize me. This text also does have something for us. And so what I would like us to do is to kind of light down on various portions of chapters 15 through 19 to see the faithfulness of the Lord our God. What I would like us to see first are the plain promises of God that are shown in chapters 15 and 16. And then we will look to the Lord and His faithfulness. And then finally, we will see the lots that come from the Lord to God's people. Let's begin then first by looking at the plain promises of God in chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 is a hard passage to read. I will spare you reading 63 verses of names. Many of us may wonder why it's in the Bible to start with. But let us never forget the promise that comes in God's word that all scripture is profitable to us. And so we need to dig a bit more and we need to also pan back a bit. We need to look at chapter 15 in the context of all of scripture. Because this allotment of places in the lowlands, in the towns and villages, in the cities... This does not occur in a vacuum. This is the fulfillment of generations of promises to the people of God. And when you begin by looking at it that way, it takes upon itself a different flavor, doesn't it? If you could imagine that something that you had been hoping, wishing for, trusting the Lord for, for decade upon decade upon decade, when it actually came to fruition... You would want to read those names over and over and over again. Is it really true? We're here. We've arrived. And you see, even though this seems very humdrum, ordinary, the recitation of names, it is actually the fulfillment of spectacular promises that God has made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. God had promised Abraham all of this land. And now we see in Joshua it being recited that every one of God's promises has come true. Don't lose sight of the marvel of God's promise to Abraham in the midst of the flurry of names. You see, what we have here now is the ordinary fulfillment of these promises... What it means to us is that God has not forgotten His promises. 
that God is not unable to deliver upon His promises. In fact, He is so able that this appears ordinary and humdrum. Do you look in your life for signs of God's marvelous promises that are fulfilled to you each and every day? Do you see His faithfulness to you in your family? Do you notice His provision for you in your daily food? You see, just as these little towns that are recited are a concrete reminder of God fulfilling His promises, so all of the events of your life are a concrete reminder that God is with you and that He is keeping His promises to you. Just because they're every day doesn't make them spectacular. As a matter of fact, we often become so used to them that they lose their luster. Have you ever wondered, for example, as you're sitting down to eat, how it could possibly be that you can take a seed and shove it in some dirt and God will provide rain and that provides food for you? It's a spectacular thing. And yet because it occurs so often, we take it for granted. And so who we see first here is the tribe of Judah getting allotted their portion. And it is, it is important to think about this because it fits the biblical context. That is, Judah is placed first above the tribes. Judah, throughout the Old Testament, is honored above others by Jacob. You remember the famous prophecy of Jacob in chapter 49 of Genesis. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That prophecy came to Judah from our forefather Jacob. And here we begin to see the opening of the fulfillment of the promise. It's as if you have been in your home late at night. And it's dark. But there's light in another room. And someone begins to open the door. And you see that crack of light begin to flow through, and it actually begins to shed light in the whole adjoining room. That's what we're seeing here. Later on, that door will be flung wide open. We will see the prominence of Judah in the king David. And of course, fulfilled in the line of Judah himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is fitting here that Judah is first in the allotments of the land, because God has brought Judah to prominence. The next thing that we see is an allotment for Caleb. Caleb is brought as one who is a man of great faith. We see this in verses 13 and following of chapter 15. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. So we specifically hear of Caleb receiving his portion. 
And again, it's in the style of this chapter, very straightforward, almost tedious. He received Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. In that one small sentence, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to Caleb that we looked at last time in chapter 14. How all of Israel were afraid of the giants and how this had cost Israel 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And Caleb kept saying, in effect, let me at him. Let me at him. And he came to Joshua and he said, I'll go up and take that land. Let me have it. I want it. And so now here and again, almost passing fashion. And Caleb went up and he defeated the enemies that Israel had been afraid of for 40 years. It seems so simple. But there is much behind it. There's the faith of Caleb. There's his bravery and courage. And there's the the promise of God that comes to Caleb in a way to fulfill it. Caleb was one who seized the promises of God and claimed them for himself. And now here what we see is God bringing about that promise. It seems simple. But remember how fearsome the Anakim were to Israel. And we get a taste of how big this task was in verse 16, when there's another city to be conquered, and Caleb says, Whoever strikes Kiriath Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Aksa, my daughter, as wife. Now, in Old Testament times, you only make this kind of offer if you think very few people will take you up on it. You only make this kind of offer because you know anyone that takes you up on this offer and succeeds is worthy to have your daughter because it's a monumental task. And so we see here how difficult the task was before Caleb. But because Caleb is a man of faith, others follow in his footsteps. And so a relative of his, we think perhaps a nephew, Othniel, says just as Caleb does, let me at him. I'll take that city. God is on my side. And that woman will be my wife. And he goes off. And he conquers the city. And he obtains the blessing. This is seeing the Lord keeping his promises. When they're fulfilled, they seem plain and simple. But never forget how extraordinary they are as they come to fulfillment. Well, next we are brought to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in chapter 16. And this is again a reminder to us how God's ways are not our ways. They are listed here in Joshua 16 in reverse birth order. They are Ephraim and Manasseh. And they get their allotments that way. First Ephraim, and then Manasseh. Now this was against the entire grain of the culture. And you can understand why. Any of you that have brothers, that are siblings who are brothers, know how much competition there is amongst brothers. And you know how the older brother is constantly telling the younger brother how much better than him he is. How he got to do everything first. 
how much more important He is. But you see, God's ways are not our ways. In God's economy here, He flips the ordinary course of life and He puts Ephraim before Manasseh. This is actually in line with Jacob's blessing in Genesis 48. You remember when Joshua bring, excuse me, Joseph brings his sons to be blessed by Jacob. And what he does is he's planned it quite well. He's planned that the older son, Manasseh, will be lined up with Jacob's right hand, and the younger son, Ephraim, will be lined up with his left hand. Jacob, or Joseph knows that his father is blind, and he's, he's trying to help Dad out. But Dad does something unusual, doesn't he? He crosses his hands. And Joseph doesn't understand this. Now, you've got to understand, Joseph has run Egypt for a decade. He knows what he's doing. Joseph has been with God. He's a man of prayer. He's followed God. And he knows what Jacob should do. And he actually looks at his father and he says, No, 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 father. You've put your hands the wrong way. And Jacob says to his son, No, son. I know exactly what I'm doing. Each of your sons shall be blessed. But the Lord has told me that the younger will be more prominent. Because God delights in upending the standards of man. Think about how often in the Bible the younger is preferred to the elder. Jacob to Esau. Isaac to Ishmael. Judah to his brothers. Ephraim to Manasseh. David to all of his brothers. You see, God delights in doing things according to his will. And when he does things according to his will, he does them in a way that makes us stand back and say, only God could do this. It's not what we expected. God is the one who has brought this about. And we see this also in the story of the daughters of Zelophad. We see this in chapter 17. Look at 17, 3. Now Zelophad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And so this created a problem of succession. Zelophad died in the wilderness. And he had no sons, so he had no one to take his inheritance. And so the ordinary course of what society would do is to take his inheritance and give it to someone else in the family, and his name would be lost forever. But the daughters instead go to Moses. We see this in the book of Numbers. They go to Moses and they say, Why should our father lose his name? Why should we lose our inheritance? Give it to us. Just because we don't have any brothers, give it to us. And God actually grants it to them. And there is a statute that is formed that day. God tells Moses to make it a perpetual statute that if a man dies and does not have any sons, his inheritance will pass to his daughters. It is contrary to the way the world worked at that time. But that's not the most remarkable thing about it. When the daughters went to Moses, Israel was still in the wilderness. Now think about that for a minute. 
There was no land to be had. There was no inheritance. They weren't in the promised land. They hadn't conquered the Canaanites. They were still wandering around in the desert. But these daughters had such faith in the promise of God that they knew that they would be out of the wilderness. They knew that they would conquer the enemy. And they knew that their father's inheritance would be had. And they wanted to claim the promise of God. That is a boldness of faith. That's the result of boldness in trusting in God. They possess what has been promised to them. And so in chapter 17, we see that promise kept, and they get their inheritance. But then we are reminded of a contrast to this kind of faith in the promises of God. We're reminded of a deviation from God's commands. At the end of chapter 17, we have the third of three sections in this passage dealing with the failure of Israel. The first one we see is at the end of chapter 15. Each of these chapters, 15, 16, and 17, end on a sour note. In chapter 15, verse 63, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So Israel failed. They were unable to do what they needed to do. And then in chapter 16, verse 10, However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. So now they couldn't drive them out. Now they didn't drive them out. Now look where we're at in chapter 17 at verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Now notice that last sentence. When they were strong enough, they still did not drive out the Canaanites. You see, we have to assume, I think, at that point, that Israel thought it wasn't that important, really, to make sure there were no Canaanites in the land. They assumed everything would be fine. They may have even thought that this was a great and profitable arrangement. They had servants to do their work. But you see, God knew that the idolatry of the Canaanites would grow like a cancer. So he had told them to drive them all out. Now this is a reminder to you and to me to follow the Lord's commands. Even when we think it's about something that isn't that significant. That God knows what is significant. That God has called us to obey him and not to determine which of his commands are worthy of our time and attention. Because a twin to this deviation from God's command is discontentment. And we begin to see this in the tribes of Joseph. They begin to think that they haven't gotten what they deserve. We see this in chapter 17, verse 14. They begin to complain. 
Why have you given me but one lot and one portion? Because I am a numerous people since all along the Lord has blessed me. Now, hidden in this discontent is a perceived inability of God to follow through and meet their needs. You can actually translate in chapter 17, verse 16, where they say, the people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. You can actually translate that, the hill country cannot be acquired by us. It's too big of a task for us. You see, what had happened was, they'd forgotten God's word. They'd forgotten that God said, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. But instead, they look and they say, we can't do this. You know, there's enemies out there and they've got chariots. What do we do? And I think here you have to, in your sanctified imagination, love Joshua. He just sort of looks at them and says, well, go have at it. If what you have is too small, there it is. Go get it. The Lord is with you. I almost wonder whether he pointed over to Caleb and said, why don't you be like him? What's with all the complaints? If you're so powerful, if you're so numerous, if you're so blessed, why can't you do what God has promised? You see, God knows our fears. And he is adequate for them. Lastly, as we turn to chapter 18 and 19, we see the lots that come to each of the Israelites from the Lord. We see the responsibility that comes to them. Now, we see that there are seven and a half tribes left. The book of Joshua is very careful to make sure that every tribe gets a piece of their land. And so he describes those who already have their land east of the Jordan, those who have their land settled now in the promised land, and he reminds us that Levi doesn't get a lot because their lot is the Lord their God. And so now there are seven and a half tribes left to settle. And this is a refrain that we see over and over again in Joshua, that the tribes will get their land. And the author now wants us to see that this gets fulfilled. And so the Canaanites have been broken. (coughs) Chapter 18, verse 1 says, The land laid subdued before them. But the tribes must go in and finish the task off. In verse 3, Joshua says, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? What he says is, God's given you his promise. He's given you this land. Now go and possess it. Because you see, oftentimes we can fall prey to the kind of thinking that says, if God has given us a promise, then we have nothing to do. We just have to sit there and wait until it falls in our lap. But that's often not how the promises of God work. The promises of God are given to us that we might have confidence to do what he has tasked us to do. To let us know that we are victorious in the Lord. His promises should stir us up to action and our duty. God has made it so, Joshua says, so go out and possess it. 
There is a responsibility that comes to us as we see the promises of God. And then there's a very fitting end to this section. As you go down through all of chapter 18 and you see all of the allotments to Benjamin and in 19 to Simeon and to Zebulun and to Issachar and to Asher and to Naphtali and to Dan. You see all of the tribes getting their allotment. But at the very end of this section, in verse 49 of chapter 19, we see, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. This is a very fitting end to this section that really begins in chapter 14, settling in the land. Who is settled in chapter 14? Caleb. Who's now settled at the end of this section? Joshua. The two faithful Israelites. The two who said, we can do this, the Lord is on our side. So we see over the course of 40 years of challenges... You know, I don't think the sand was less abrasive to Joshua or Caleb as they wandered around. I don't think that God put shade over them alone as they wandered for 40 years. They suffered with all of Israel for 40 years. And sometimes we can feel like that as well. Why are we suffering? We're seeking to be faithful, to be faithful to God's word, to be faithful to the gospel. Why are we suffering along with others? Because that's God's way at times. But we see that God always keeps his promises. That in the end here, not only Caleb, but also Joshua received the promises of God. After all those years and all those trials, God is faithful. And this is what we must remember in the middle of the hardness of life. That no matter what we think, no matter what our circumstances are or the, how they appear, God is faithful. You can count on Him at every turn. This is the blessing we see in the fulfillment of the promises of our Lord to Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have shown us your faithfulness to your people. And that even though they are not deserving, you have persevered with them. And you are faithful and true. Lord, we ask that you would find us faithful and true. That you would encourage us to follow your promises. That in all that we do, we would seek to glorify you. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen.